Let's Eat! Welcome to Let's Eat. All queers, all food, all the time. With your hosts, Honey LaFleur and JT Newman. So we had Greg O'Neill from Victory Cheese, formerly the owner of Pastoral, on the pod to yeah. talk more about small cheese producers and how the pandemic affected them. I do enjoy a good cheese. Greg and I met in the 2010s. Um, we met at Howard Brown Health Center. So he is very, very good friends with my former boss there. And, mm. um, you know, I got to know him at Howard Brown and then I did some work. I, I think, I don't know if you know about this, but I worked with Test Positive Aware Network. Um, I did a contract with them called uh, Barlesque. So what it was, was a month long, month long fundraiser in the local bars, the local gay bars. And each gay bar chose a bartender to be their, um, their burlesque participant. And what burlesque is, is a series, it was a series, it had a website and there was a series of 15 or 16 photographs or maybe 20 where the bartender was getting more and more naked in each in each photograph. And as they fundraised, um, it unlocked the next picture. And so, okay. yeah, so each bar was doing fundraisers for an entire month. And then mm-hmm. they had their bartender getting more and more naked. And it ended with this giant party at, a, at one of the bars in Boys Town. And um, we raised like $70,000 from wow. donations over a month so it was pretty 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 awesome and that's how I know Greg. Yeah. So I worked very closely with him at test positive aware network cool yeah I um I feel like I saw stuff about it like after I had moved I, I saw a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah that's super cool yeah and fun yeah Greg is uh really rad and I think um you know I it's interesting, like thinking about like, okay, artisan cheese, like doing something like what the fuck is that? But I do think it's a really cool way to like looking at it. Um, and also just like hearing him talk about it. It does seem like this really interesting way for consumers to connect with their, like their, the people who make their food, you know, which I think is something that I think has felt very um like douchey or something that is like kind of elitist for a while right like you know we think about farm to table and for a long time it was something that like people were like what get get the fuck out of here with this like fancy the whole portlandia skit about going out to meet the chicken before you eat it you know like that is i hate hate portland portlandia and that skit is hilarious also because it's kind of real killed me and amazing and you know people think of it as this as this sort of douchey thing but I think there's room for supporting small businesses and supporting local purveyors and local providers and people who are making food in your community totally yeah like it's actually really important and I think it's something that um you know until recently we sort of didn't realize and I think it's because um, you know, there's been a call for a long time for chefs and food producers to do better, right? But I think Greg brought up a good point of like last summer, everything kind of imploded and I think it happened all over, but 
the food industry has been really interesting in that. And I think in this way that it is no longer just an elitist, inaccessible thing to connect with your farmers, right? Like CSAs are much more popular than I think they used to be. And I feel like they're a little bit more accessible for people. And I think that, um, you know, just like little things like that are uh, more understood. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I think it's no longer just these like incredible well-known chefs. It's no longer the celebrity. Sure. Sure. I don't think it's about the celebrity anymore when I think it kind of used to be that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so yeah, it's it's really fun. Really cool. And I, I really was excited to, to hear more about cheese. So Greg, um, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you, who you are and what you do and, um, what's going on. Sure. So I'm um, Greg O'Neill, and I um, I started my career um, way too long ago at, in marketing. So I'm a marketing guy uh, by trade, um, brand management. I started off in advertising, and I worked for all the big brand companies like Colgate, Palmolive, and Motorola, Verizon, um, even Polaroid, which was really fun back in the day. Um, and um, we got my partner, Ken, and I have been together almost 29 years um, in October, which is amazing because I don't know how we didn't get any older, but now we're 29 years together. Um, and we got to a point in our lives where we decided we would traveled a lot, lived in Europe for a while. Ken went to culinary school. We got to really jazzed about the food we were eating living in Germany and Budapest, Hungary and New York and Boston, got to Chicago, back back to Chicago and realized that we saw a need for something that we wanted and that we found out other people wanted, which was to have amazing small production food um, that with service and education and a really nice experience um, cut to order. So in, um, 2004, we opened up Pastoral Artisan Cheese, Bread, and Wine, started a little 383-square-foot shop on Broadway, uh, just at at Oakdale, and um, it took off. It was, like, weird how exciting it was for people. It made all the news, and all of a sudden, we had a hit on our hands, and before we knew it, things just really started taking off. Um, we got an offer to open a store in the Loop um, right on Lake Street, um, which over the years got even more and more in the middle of what was going on of the Loop ren- Renaissance. And then we got the opportunity to open up in the Chicago French Market, with, which was that indoor market right at the Ogilvy Transportation Center. And that was a lot of fun because um, we got to reach all the people going to the suburbs. So like somebody is commuting from Evanston, they're taking their train right in there, came down and we didn't have to open a store in Evanston, but we were reaching people in Evanston. And then fourth, we opened up our, um, our store in uh, Andersonville, which was uh, not just a store. It was also a, a wine bar restaurant called Appalachian plus a pastoral store all wrapped up in one. 
We also opened up Bar Pastoral in 2012, which was adjacent and connected to our original store. So we kind of did a little bit more of this, enjoy the pastoral experience on premises. You know, if you're not, how would we do it in our home? We kind of show you how we'd prepare it. And if you don't want to do that at home, you can do it with us or do it with us. And then we'll send you home with some so you can replicate it with your friends. Um, so we did that for a number of um, years, um, over 15 years. And our, our catering business grew. Um, our, we were three times uh, in Oprah's favorite things, which we're very proud of. And actually more proud that we were named um, best specialty food retailer in the country two times. Um, and we got one time we received our award from Rick Bayless in New York at the fancy food show. And the second time uh, we got it in Washington, D.C. from Jose Andres, which I mean, oh, my God, Jose Andres. So um, it was it's it was a really amazing ride. And um we ended up closing that business um, at the end of 2019, which felt like just minutes before the pandemic. And maybe there was somebody um, from above looking down on us and telling us it was the right time, but it felt like the right time. And, and then I, we're, you know, I'm still in the industry very much um, doing marketing consulting with cheese makers and promoting Spanish wines and, and then I co-founded with a, a good friend um, something called Victory Cheese, which was a, and still is, a grassroots pro bono um, call to action and uh, awareness campaign um, to save the uh, artisan cheese industry, which is a really big, was a huge issue when the pandemic hit because small to medium sized producers of specialty cheese saw their business drop 30 to 80% almost overnight. So we galvanized a whole cadre of people from across the industry, across the country, and we made, we made things work. Um, we got celebrity chefs involved, we got all sorts of people involved and we clanged the bell got on the Today Show, got on Boston Globe, NPR, wherever they would have us. And um, we also did this thing called the Victory Cheese Box. And I don't know if you guys heard about that, but the World War II had the Victory Gardens. Um, that, you know, that was kind of a way for everybody to do something and feel like they were contributing to the war effort. So yeah. we decided... What if, what if we, what could people do to help? So we had 130, I think, purveyors in the country offered Victory Cheese Boxes, often pairing up, like we had a BIPOC one, we had a women's one, we had all these amazing themed things, um, you know, an Illinois one, which was amazing, um, with Prairie Fruits Farm down in, um, down in Champaign, Illinois. Um, and then we paired a lot of time up with chefs. We had Marcus Samuelson. We had um, Rick Bayless, um, Stephanie Izard, um, all over the country, um, amazing chefs. And uh, 
it was kind of, um, we sold over $2 million worth of cheese boxes in, in a relatively short period of time. So that's kind of where it got us to where we are now. I've been doing that advocacy and the story has been, you know, the journey has sort of just evolved and, um, you know, small producers and all the work they do and the great products they create is part of my DNA. Yeah. So Greg, I'm curious, you, so you mentioned like advocacy with the victory cheese boxes. Can you go into more detail on, on what exactly that is? Cause I think I, I, I just missed what, what the victory cheese boxes do. So like, is it supporting the folks that you're partnering with or does it support like an industry or um, where is great question. It's great question. There's probably a threefold benefit to the victory cheese box program. Um, First of all, it supports the producer or the purveyor of, you know, that's why we have so many people participating. They could sell their own, but we always required that a victory cheese box, not only have your product, but you have to support a couple of other businesses. So say, say you're in Wisconsin and you're a cheesemaker, you have to get maybe two or three other cheesemakers and maybe some people that make crackers and, Mm. you know, jams and stuff like that. So you're supporting your own little ecosystem. And when it was the women's one, they got a bunch of other women owned businesses and the BIPOC one similarly. So there was that. The second is that 10% of every single box um, was supposed to go to uh, philanthropically to either a food, agriculture, or social justice um, based charity. And we were able to make substantial uh, donations from these sales to myriad industries across the country, which was great because you know, these people were already suffering with their businesses, but they still wanted to give to somebody else. Yeah. And then the third aspect of benefit is aggregate because the cheese victory cheese boxes became this thing that consumers could do even if they weren't leaving their house. I had, my cousin lives in Maryland. She wanted, she was kind of going through the list and ordering them. And every time somebody had a birthday, and every time there was something, she went and supported another one of the producers. And it, it was a hook for when we were going doing PR with, you know, NPR or this one or that one, because um, the story had a, there was a way that people could, there was no proof that somebody went into a store or went on Amazon or whatever and bought somebody's cheese. But we knew how many victory cheese boxes we sold. And that was a good barometer of how well our movement was performing. And it really did perform. I remember when the guy went on, um, one of our, our purveyors went on to the Today Show before the holidays. He sold $40,000 worth of cheese boxes in an hour and a half online. Wow. Wow. We know each other kind of from our philanthropy days, our queer philanthropy days here in Chicago. Indeed. And, um, and ever since that was, that was like early two, 2010s, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, like around 2011, 2010. Yeah. Damn. Right after Howard Brown went through that big transition. Yes, they did. That's right when I left the city. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right when she left. Right when I ran away to Oregon. (laughs) Oh, Oregon. Awesome. That's, that's, that's God's country, but it's a little warm there right now. But other than that, I mean, it is actually, we just bought an air conditioner because it is so warm. Um, but yeah, it's so, it's interesting. I was actually just, while you were talking, I was kind of looking up the victory cheese boxes and there's a couple in like some places that I know of in here in Oregon, um, that they're like selling it at like cheese bar and, and new season, which is like a huge grocery yeah. retailer for us here. It is. So and, that's super and, cool. And what, the, you know, and the thing is now that we've been kind of doing this since May, late May of uh, 2020, you know, there was a big wave early on when the crisis was really, um, you know, kind of front and center and everybody was suffering. Um, So I think there are some on there now and there will continue to be. And we have volunteers who are still doing social media and reminding people to buy American cheese. And I'm not by American cheese. I don't mean Kraft singles. I mean, cheese made in America. I mean, yeah. you know what, Greg, Kraft singles are really good. You got it. I have always wanted to have a a mixer, a singles mixer called Kraft Singles. Okay, I, that's I, funny. Far pastoral. That sounds really fun. With Greg I feel Kraft. like you should do that somewhere. Maybe you could do it at uh, the bar you went to last night. What's it called? No, nobody's oh, starting. Nobody's yeah, starting. Would, yeah I, I would say probably with that idea, nobody'd be biting either. But, uh, but, uh, so yeah, it's the, you, we still have the, um, victory cheese program, um, the boxes and such. And, you know, that now that we're X number of months out, things have changed, but the victory cheese message really resonated. And I don't know if it makes sense to go into this now, because what's actually happening with victory cheese is very of the moment. Yeah, Yeah, I'm curious. I'm just curious because like I, so I don't know if JT told you much about this, but I am the reluctant foodie of the two of us. Like I am not very, uh, I don't know, food, like I'll eat great food. I love it. But like, I'm not the one to be like, oh my God, let's get a good cheese box. It's so, it's, I'm just like, this is delicious. Um, So I'm curious for like, you know, not how it got started, but like what, uh what your desire was behind specifically the artisan cheeses yeah and i will say you know you coming from the pacific northwest you come from one of the most natural food ecosystems food and beverage ecosystems in the country if not the world because even if you're not trying to eat well what you have in your backyard generally is of high quality and probably higher than you can find in a lot of places so even if you're not actively trying to be um, a food um, activist or food foodie, which I hate that word, but um, <laughs> the, I live, I really loathe that word. Um, but but you can do that there without trying too hard. You just yeah. go to a new seasons or right. something like that, and you'll they they get it for you. Um, yeah. I mean, you can go but, to the Fred Meyer and still. Uh, sometimes participate in a little bit of uh, I would say ethical food not food justice but I would say even the local like 
the Kroger run grocery store still has some options. Yes. I, yes, dot, dot, dot. I, I yeah. think that there's a, you have to try harder um, to, I would agree. to find it. And um, yeah. I think, I think you asked me, I, I think the question was uh, about um, food, like my activism around it or. Uh, I guess like, I guess my, I think I'm curious, like why artisan cheese? Like I find, I feel like I have thoughts of like, why? Cause I also was like, so in looking at it, um, like, you know, artisan cheese is expensive. So it's a specific like income, right. Of somebody that can afford it. But I also think that that is probably really smart in a way to like bill, but like, like, yeah, I think I'm so curious as to like why artisan cheeses specifically. I mean, obviously that's a big part of what pastoral was. It's yeah. an easy question to answer, actually. Yeah. And and also you brought up something which is actually um, somewhat misunderstood among the general mm -hmm. public. That is that small production, um, you know, supporting small family farms is, you know, beyond the the pocketbook. Um, I really honestly believe that there are you know products to accessible at all price points but this is the, the crux of why we do what we do is family businesses small family farms you know there is a ton of i don't know if you've seen any of the michael pollan books or any of these big um movies documentaries about big big agriculture, big, big farm, corporate farming and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. and if you go to a state like um, Illinois, you could drive for miles and miles and miles and see Monsanto planted GMO um, corn and all that kind of stuff. Well, if that's all you want there to be, um, they will fill up every square acre of that land, tillable land. What, what, um, not just in cheese, but in a lot of other categories, whether it be meats and you know proteins and, and dairy and and you know produce, what artisan producers are doing, more micro producers, if you want to call it that, you know they are actually trying to produce food that people eat of high quality, and when and you know the handcrafted nature of the product, how it how it is made, um, what they're not doing to it, <laughs> as much as what they are doing to it, um, respecting, you know, traditional methods um, and, you know, not losing them. You know, you've got family, families, multi-generational families, like, for example, in, in, in Vermont and in a lot of states, I know, I know people that, you know, they're, They've got multi-generations working on this. People like the story, but they also love the product. And, you know, the, the precursor to the cheese movement or the rise of cheese was wine. And you live mm -hmm. out in wine country. Um, you know, wine used to be a generic thing. And back when our parents were all growing up, wine was not a big deal. It was like in a jug or maybe for a special occasion once a year. I remember my mom with the gallo jug of whatever it was. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, but then there was in the 70s into the 80s, there was a, a whole awakening of the public 
and even some hobbyism around, you know, learning and enjoying and um, celebrating winemakers. And then you found that there were more micro winemakers coming on and the choices were getting better and more interesting. Well, then you get to the, you know, advance the film to late 90s to right around 2000. And all of a sudden, you know, artisan cheesemakers and like, you know, one of the things that you may not know is, but huge amount of the queer community and, and women were huge. Um, they were the torch bearers of the start of the artisan cheese movement. The, the mm-hmm. cowgirls of Cowgirl Creamery, um, Sue Conley and, and um, Peggy Smith. Um, my very dear friend, um, uh, David Gremmels and his former partner, Carrie um, from Rogue Creamery in, um, down in uh, Rogue River Valley of, of, of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, we have tons of people like that were just in our community and they were the women really, especially with goat cheese and all that stuff, they were the harbingers and the, the forebearers that really got on board and the public was really into it. When we did our market research to open pastoral, we actually did formal market research. And we had people interviewing over 300 people. And we, we, you know, we were going to call it pastoral wine, bread, and cheese. And when we ended up getting our, our uh, research done, it said cheese was off the hook. So we put cheese as the first one in the, in the list. Because everybody, you know, wine and cheese. No, this is cheese and wine. And over 70, maybe 74% of those identified themselves as a primary customer and as somebody who would come in at least once a month. And I think the reality of that was that people could taste the difference and they appreciated that you could cook with cheese. You could, you know, you could eat it a snack just as something, you know, it's healthy fats. Um, And then you could entertain with cheese and, and you can also gift with cheese. Um, and frankly, not everybody drinks, but everybody eats and <laughs> it's, uh, it works out really nicely. And quite frankly, that, you know, at this point in time, a lot of the cheesemakers who started all this, some of them are getting long in the tooth and they're having to either sell their businesses or, um, I know a cowgirl, they brought on a really bright woman by the name of Amanda Parker, uh, uh, a lesbian who's, you know, extremely well-educated. She came up through the Merck cheese uh, stores in uh, New York and they made her managing director when, when Peg and Sue retired a few years ago and she's taking it to a whole new level. So we have a big young industry we're confronting issues of equity. Um, you know, so when the whole Victory Cheese thing happened, two seconds later was the whole George Floyd thing. Mm-hmm. And that exposed all of the other underlying issues, even though we were dealing with just, you know, existential issues about having a business at all. But then there was like, why are there no black cheesemakers? Hardly. Why are there so few? 
people of color in general? Why are there, you know, there, there were just so many, um, so many questions that were good questions. Um, there are, there are hardly any LGBT, well, LGBT was well represented, but people of color, much less so. Trans, not really much. Um, and, and a lot of people who thought they were progressive and they were at a certain point in time, but their level of progressive kind of stopped at where, you know, sort of like, yeah, you listen to music during your life. And then there's a point where you stop listening to new music and you kind of just stop at where you, your, your life's playlist stops. At a certain yeah. point. I think that's sort of what happened in our industry. Probably one of the most welcoming progressive industries out there. But I think a lot of people were woke, as they say, but I don't think they were. And I think mm -hmm. that a lot of them were a lot of people that would be shocked to hear that they are not fully on board. Um, sure. We're kind of called out. Yeah. So that's a it's an interesting thing because it's a. It's an industry that has been very, very, always had a very high, um, almost dominated by women. You know, we've had uh, women founders, women presidents, um, women presidents of our, you know, the American Cheese Society. And I'm a former president of that, which is the largest um, um, industry association for cheese in North America. But many, many of the um, presidents and board chairs and stuff like that have been women and they've been driving it. So we thought we were pretty much there. But the reality is money, land, access, all these things are, you know, agriculture in general, African-Americans just have not had the access to it. And, you know, the Latino uh, community as well. And and these are things that are going to change. They have to change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think especially because like people of color have access to working in agriculture, but not access to power. So it's like in that, you know, yeah, like they're never alone. always, they're always sort of essential workers. And, and um, I think it's, I think that's really astute too, of like, absolutely knowing like, you know, as the country had this huge reckoning after George Floyd. Um, like, I do think a lot of folks in a lot of different industries, but I think specifically the restaurant industry really, and like food in general, really started looking at itself in this way that um, it, yeah, it was a little bit like, I don't know, JT, you, you maybe kept up on it a little more closely than I did, but I definitely noticed it here in Portland and I was I don't want to say impressed because that feels like ally cookie, but like it was really um, kind of surprising and and like refreshing to see them sort of quickly question. And see, and I think um, your point too, Greg, of like food industry has really like, even though they don't necessarily have the resources right now because of COVID, like immediately stepped up and we're like, here is like, let's give back to the community in a way that, um, you know, they don't necessarily have the means, but they're doing it. And that's, I think that's great. Well, you're right. And so words are great. Actions are better. <laughs> and, and so 
I think it really it behooved a lot of these organizations and industries to put their money where their mouth was. Um, mm -hmm. The ACS is having its first conference since um, since the pandemic. It's a virtual conference. The next one, by the way, will be in Portland next summer. It was supposed to have been in, in Portland this year, but it will be virtual this year. Um, but they have a whole session, a general session, which is to everybody um, on, on equity in cheese with a BIPOC uh, panel. Um, wow. We also have a, we have a gay group. It's a Facebook page, but it, they're going to have a session at the conference and it's called LGBTQ. <laughs> um, I know. We're a little punny, um, but the idea that they're, they're actually also looking at the scholarships that are given to go to the conference, which can be expensive and all that stuff and, and making sure we, we have endowed um, scholarships now for people of color and people that in various um, kind of underserved communities. We're trying to look at not just race and not just gender or orientation, but all the areas where we're, we're not looking hard enough. And, and I think um, the other big news about Victory Cheese uh, that I wanted to share was we were so excited when we talked to the people who run um, ACS because it was determined that Victory Cheese, having been as successful as it was, really raised um, the public awareness of the American cheese, especially specialty and artisan cheese. And that is to say more non-industrially produced cheese. And um, ACS has, is the industry of record for that community, but they haven't really had a voice to the consumer. So they vote, their board voted unanimously to take Victory Cheese into ACS and make that the ongoing um, voice um, to the consumer promoting and, and supporting um, artisan and specialty cheese made in America. So it will have a home going now, now that it was a movement, it will actually be funded and um, it'll be announced later this week. And I'm excited about it because uh, they are actually going to change it from being a crisis vehicle to an ongoing um, promotional vehicle to reach the public and, you know, extol the virtues of why, like you said, why should I be buying artisan and specialty cheese? What is it about it? Yeah, it costs a little more it's a, or it's not as easily found as, you know, the, the big block of unidentifiable cheddar from wherever, but- At old Tillamook. Well, and there's nothing against Tillamook and some of, they do make some specialty cheeses, but they're enormous and they're, they're enormous. And, and I, we have nothing against that. We're not tearing down, we're building up that we wanna really make sure that people know they have a choice and everybody has a choice every single time they eat, we all do. Like what I have for lunch, what I what I what I don't have for lunch, you know, and and you can vote your conscience with your wallet and your palate. 
Well, and that is exactly what Honey and I were talking about. We talked about this last week is like, you know, what are the small steps you can take to personally um, put your money where your mouth is and, and, you know, like help break down capitalism and break down the big corporate structures in order to support smaller producers and, and more mom and pop shops kind of thing. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you the interesting thing, it may not seem intuitive, but sometimes the way to do that is to actually work with these huge companies and help them and kind of shame them into supporting um, the, the other stuff. And they do. So we ended up getting big companies like Lando Lakes and all these other types of companies. And they forked up money um, to support things like Victory Cheese. And, um, and they also, they realized they have been, they were riding the coattails. The demand for a lot of these big producers of product, that was out of vogue, you know, in the last five, 10 years even 15 years and they were trying to mimic almost borrow from like using words like artisan and kind of cheapening it. And we fought back. We fought back because somebody actually used one of our names and was trying to, they wanted to shoot a commercial in our cheese shop. Like we would ever carry their cheese in our cheese shop. And we weren't trying to be snotty about it, but at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm not going to let you co-opt our imagery Imagery when your cheese is nothing like that. It's not made in a way that a, a shop like ours would ever consider it. Enjoy it in Costco. But then here's the deal. You talk about big companies. You know who's coming around? Costco. Um, Walmart. So we're trying to get homes because some of the smaller artisan producers and they, they are scaling up and we don't want them to just be small for, you know, I, we want them to be able to feed their families and have something to leave to their, to their families later on. If they get bigger, but they have a good ethos, you know, full speed ahead. Vermont Creamery is now, they built from nothing and good friends of ours built it from nothing into an over $25 million, you know, company but they still have all the methods and the ethos that you know make them the real deal mm -hmm. and those are the types of companies you want to support and i think it doesn't take that much work you know looking at b companies and all the things that all the types of um, companies that want make it a good place to work treat their people fairly pay a good wage support their community um hire actively and, and as, a, as a leg up and, and give people training and job readiness so that they can, they can go, they can be promoted from just carrying milk things and, and doing mundane tasks into highly skilled tasks. And I think that that's, yeah. that's where that's in Chicago, we've got the hatchery, which is something I'm now a part of. It's um, one of the country's best food incubators. It's on the west side of, of um, Chicago in a not great neighborhood, but it's getting funded by people like Kellogg's and Conagra and all that stuff because they realize that we have to support people, you know, entrepreneurial 
food entrepreneurs, I guess. That's the, that's the best word. And um, Craig, do you find that like, because I think, you know, as someone who like here in Oregon, I've watched the store new seasons grow um, and they're now more corporately owned than they mm-hmm. are not owned anymore. And I think some of the changes are not necessarily great for people that like work there. Um, and so like, you know, JT and I were talking last week doing my part. I always try to like uh, rate the store and like give everyone, I always give them like, like the top <laughs> rating, but I also always put in there like, please make sure you're giving your workers a, a competitive wage. Like, please pay them more. These people, you know, like little things like that. Do you find that like being funded by Kellogg and, and bigger companies that that could compromise or like, do you have, are there setups? Like, I'm just kind of curious what well, A, your thoughts are and B, what the, you know, whatever you can say about it. Well, with the, with the hatchery, which mm-hmm. is truly a, you know, community trying to lift up and, provide a venue and training and resources for would-be entrepreneurs, mostly from underserved mm-hmm. communities, you need resources. Yeah. So the fact that totally. somebody like Kellogg's is giving $3 million a year without strings. Cool. And that's, that's, a, that's a really important thing. Now, mm-hmm. sure, they may, by, by having done this, they're going to be having access to a lot of these people and they may see a good idea that they adopt and maybe they even invest in that person, co-invest in that person. But it, but they're also putting just money out there so that there's facilities and resources for, you know, I'm actually helping right now um, two African-American uh, lesbian um, owners of a, it's going to be a, a new taco uh, business on the South side and 43rd street. And they are, they're killing it. They've got great food. What's their and name? And they, it's What's called Taylor's Tacos. Okay. Oh my God, and they're on the website. <laughs> yes. And they are, they're not open yet, but they're going to be open soon. And I'm going down there next week. And, you know, they're, and they just got married. The two, the, the women who own it just got married last week. But, you know, my experience of how do you deal with opening a business in the city? How do you go through the red tape? How do you do what happens when this happens? And what, you know, sharing expertise, sharing what worked, what didn't work and all this stuff, taking that extra time is also just as valuable as the $3 million. But yeah. the $3 million keeps the light on. So <laughs> So I'm, I'm happy to see a Conagra and a Kellogg's come in as long as they don't come in, as long as that money is given unrestricted or yeah. in a way that it doesn't, you know, sometimes a not-for-profit, as you know, JT, they, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll get a bequest or you'll get some kind of money, but it can only be used for this. Yeah. But your need is over here, but your need is over here. Yeah. And the reality is that that doesn't help you because you need that that you need that million dollars here not there and it can be a real the name of the game is general operating funds right and and unrestricted so yes so they're when they're doing that that truly is social responsibility and i think corporations that exercise true social responsibility deserve the kudos that are are you know that they've that they've earned um 
And then there are some people who just pretend. And I don't have time for those. Um, you know, life's short. You got to put up or shut up. And, um, and the food industry, I think we can get lazy. And I think that food activism rides a wave, you know, kind of like we, we have so many crises that, you know, what's the next crisis? But, but the food future of good food is going to be an ongoing issue. And I think it's one that we need to, you know, shine a light on. And, and I think the fact that we're able to now deal with issues of equity and other things now, we have the luxury of doing that now because we had in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we had so many ex existential, you know, very primary needs that needed to be met first. But now everybody's got their eyes on it and you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You got to keep doing it. Totally true. Totally true. Yeah. Well, I think we are at time. I think we should probably pivot to, yeah. and thank you so much, Greg, for all of the. Sure. All yeah, of seriously. Hope it was helpful. Oh, for yeah, sure. This was great. Um, so cool. we're going to pivot to our one for the jar. Um, that is something that we are upset about or annoyed us this past week about pop culture or news or um, anything in the, in, in the world. Um, honey, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, <laughs> my, my one for the fucking jar is the goddamn Olympics. And also while we're at it, Megan fucking Rapino, do better, bitch. You're dumb. <laughs> I don't have time. Like, how dare you? How fucking dare you? Did you know, did you know that Ms. Megan Rapino, her fucking Instagram photo like her avatar is a black lives matter photo that literally says black lives matter and this bitch showed up at the olympics to talk about weed ah, like talk about what to talk about cbd and how she uses oh. cbd in her practice as a professional soccer player when shikari richardson was just banned for using thc like how dare you they're the same fucking plant it's the same thing like both have different effects but like they're the oh I just like I can't it's so gross to me and I just want to slap her quite frankly wow so that's my fucking one for the jar and then the Olympics just keep being terrible and horrific and whoever is watching them gross that's how I feel about it. That's my one for the jar. Honey always has strong opinions. Greg, what's your one for the jar? I, I'm going to keep mine close to my industry because uh, if I get into the politics of things, I'll, I, I could possibly have my head explode. So <laughs> um, one of the things that's been driving me nuts, and I know it drives a lot of people nuts, is the misuse by a bunch of digits of the term charcuterie board oh my god <laughs> i, I want to I wanna strangle the life out of them first of all charcuterie is meat cured meats and when you're you're calling it a charcuterie board it's cheese and and crackers and fruit um that is a cheese board but people like and they start getting really cute and people start going i got charcuterie and it's like, oh my God, it's ridiculous. And 
And I think a lot of people also they're doing people are starting these businesses out of their home with no food safety and all that stuff. And they're and it's all about Instagram. And there are actually people who are doing beautiful work, who work really hard and who have the proper, you know, they've got the training and they've got the the food safety. And I feel like they're kind of getting upstaged by a bunch of people who are just loud and obnoxious. Sorry, that's my thing. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, so we also have a glitter in the air, which is our one, like, you know, it's our win. It's like our fun, exciting thing. And mine is definitely summer. I am enjoying it. I went to uh, Savi Island, which is like a cute little, it's like a cute little, it's not technically in Portland, but it's like a little pocket of Portland. Um, And it's this island that like has no gas stations on it. It's like very green and like there's, it's where a lot of farms are that are very local to Portland. And um, they have a beach, like a really fun beach. There's a family friendly side and then there's a nudie side and then there's a queer nudie side. (laughs) And I went two whole days in a row this week, yesterday and Friday, and it has been wonderful. I'm sun soaked. So today I'm staying inside. (laughs) That's wonderful. Greg, how about you? Um, I, I am, um, kind of grateful for silver linings. You know, I think uh, all the bad stuff that's happened over the last 18 months, but I feel like I've learned from it. I had a chance to kind of regroup, re-energize, kind of, you know, re- renew. And, and I feel like I'm just very much reimagining that from here on, like my world isn't going to be exactly the same as it was before. It might be a little smaller, but I've really enjoyed running into the people that I haven't seen. You know, we say, oh, it's been a year. No, it's been over a year and a half. And in some cases, almost two years. And, um, you know, having really meaningful conversations and re- re-emerging and seeing people and having joyful reunions. That's been the best part of this, um, especially the last month. I, you that's know, great. That's mine too. I feel the same way. I feel incredibly grateful for the opportunity of the pandemic for me <clears> personally <throat> to take time to regroup. You know, I was unemployed for 10 months. And so it really gave me a lot of time to think, a lot of time to focus, and a lot of time to figure out what's important to me. And I really have appreciated I'm like so excited that I connected with you, Greg, for example. I know, me too. Yeah, like reconnecting on something that we're both passionate about that we never actually really talked about before. Um, nope. So some of those, you know, fortuitous moments and, and really discovering what my passion is and then putting it out there and having it come back to me is really been my glitter in the air this week. Also, Benifer, really excited about that. Really? <laughs> that was going to be like my second one for the jar. I just, I don't like it. I'm happy they're happy. You know, I, actually, that that would have been your third one for the jar, honey. If you if I'm counting, <laughs> right? Technically, yes. We yes. mostly have the jar for honey. <laughs> uh, yes, well, that is accurate. That's funny. well, Benifer. At least they made it official. You know, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, you know, awesome. it's right. uh, better than listening to the Royals every five minutes. Let's put it that way. Totally. <gasps> 
I love that. That's that's a good one. <laughs> Never cared about the Royals until uh, Meghan Markle came on the scene. Oh yeah, she's she's she done a finger snapper too. That's for sure. Love it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. We're going to wrap it up. Thanks for the interest of Victory Cheese and all the yeah. stuff we're doing in the cheese industry because um, it we need to keep shining a light on it. And it's not over yet. You know, a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the crisis that everybody talks about. There are still a lot of people who are not back to where they were pre-pandemic, and so we gotta <laughs> we gotta still focus on that. So thanks again. This has been an episode of Les Eat, produced by Honey LaFleur and JT Newman. You can find us on Instagram at Les Eat Pod. Our royalty-free theme is brought to you by Music for Video Library on YouTube. You can find us on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening and tune in again.